All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. Today we're going to be discussing Cuba and specifically we're going to be discussing the left wing in the United States, their response to what's going on in Cuba right now. Because I find a lot of the ways that they're talking about Cuba to be very, very, not only interesting, but insightful. Because the, the question that we need to ask ourselves, and I'm going to go over some very specific quotes that appeared in 2019, that appeared before that, and, and what we're seeing right now. We're going to go over some specific quotes, and we're going to attack this from a little bit different angle. Because what I think is so important here is not just the debates about what are people in Cuba really protesting, right? There's, there's been a ton of articles on that, right? They, the Biden administration tried to come out initially and suggest that they were, they were protesting over vaccines and COVID, which again, in an, in an earlier podcast, we pointed out that's interesting because several months ago, a lot of the people in the world press were talking about what a great job the Cuban healthcare system has done, not only for their country, but for others in combating Cuba to include one article that even talked about the advantages that an authoritarian regime has over a, a democracy or a representative government. All right, so we're not going to talk about that today. Here's what we're going to go in today. If you look at some of the statements coming from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, coming from Bernie Sanders, coming from Black Lives Matter, coming from Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the author of the 1619 Project, it is difficult not to come to the conclusion that they admire what Cuba has done. Now, I, I want to be fair. I'm not saying that they admire every aspect of what the Cuban regime has done. But, but overall, they have a favorable view of Fidel Castro, Che Guevara. They have a favorable view of the way that Cuba provides healthcare, provides education, controls the economic output, the way they address inequities in society. And, and before you Tell me that I'm being hyperbolic right here. I want to read you a quote from Nicole Hannah-Jones. Again, the uh, kind of the main force behind the 1619 Project. Here's what she said. She goes, if you want to see the most equal multiracial, it's not a democracy, the most equal multiracial country in our hemisphere, it would be Cuba. She said this in 2019. Cuba has the least inequality between black and white people of any place really in the hemisphere. Most of the Caribbean, it's hard to count because the white population in a lot of these countries is very, very small. Their countries run by black votes, but in places that are truly at least biracial countries, Cuba actually has the least inequality, and that's largely due to socialism, which I'm sure no one wants to hear. So that's Nicole Hannah-Jones, 
1619 Project, lifting up Cuba as a model for addressing inequality. Black Lives Matter put out a tweet basically condemning not the Cuban regime, but condemning the United States and our embargo. This was echoed by people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It was echoed by Bernie Sanders. So what's interesting is, is that you have a number of people, and it's gotten so bad that even a Washington Post reporter came out and said that, well, yeah, a lot of Democrats don't want to go hard on the Cuban regime because the Cuban regime is implementing a lot of the socialist policies that they find favorable. Now, the response from Alexandria Cortez, Bernie Sanders, et cetera, the left in general, will be to like, well, yeah, they like the economic policies, but they don't like the political oppression. They, they don't want people to crack down on protesters. But if they had to choose, yeah, they'd probably take a little bit of political oppression if it meant that they could address inequality the way that the Cuban government has. Okay, so that begs the question. And as we, as we get into how do we make our argument when we address what's going on right now, there's a couple questions that we have to ask from our leftist friends when they basically run interference for the Cuban regime amidst political repression, crackdowns, poverty, you know, COVID issues, etc. Because there's this long trend now, and, and we, before, we, we've seen it in Cuba for a while. Before that, the, the most prominent example was Venezuela. You had Hollywood starlets, you had Bernie Sanders. I think it was even Bernie Sanders that was talking about the American dream is more real in Venezuela than it is in America, right? That's how they were talking about Venezuela early on within the Hugo Chavez um, regime. And what ended up happening? Well, Hugo Chavez didn't initially run as a full-blown socialist, but he governed that way to the point where he was actually going around and, and in many cases abolishing the private ownership of the means of production and distribution, which again, when we're talking about socialism, whether you want to call it revolutionary socialism, democratic socialism, whatever you want to call it, the key feature of socialism is the abolition of the private ownership of the means of production. Hugo Chavez was attempting to implement that. There, there's, a, there's a video of Hugo Chavez walking down the street as one of his aides is telling him which businesses are what on the street, and you see Hugo Chavez going, expropriate, 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 which basically means government take it over. And then ideally it was to give to the people. Okay, so, so what happened? Well, he started to implement these socialist policies, everything from education, healthcare, central planning of the economy, government takeover of major industries. He started doing all of that. Well, when oil prices were high, that wasn't hurting them so bad. He had more money to give out. The problem was is that he was destroying entrepreneurship within Venezuela. You didn't want to invest in Venezuela because you didn't know if the government was just going to come in and take it. You, didn't want your, you, you couldn't build your business up to a certain degree because the government would come in and take it. So what happened? Well, people with the knowledge and the know-how left the country. They went somewhere else. Other people who are highly productive decided to not be as productive because what's the point? So step one was implement the socialist policies. And initially, yeah, a lot of people were glad when they were taking money from some people and handing it out to others. But once you destroyed the entrepreneurial spirit, once you made it very, very difficult to be able to effectively run a business and provide people with products and services that they wanted, well then, you're, the results were you made everyone poorer. 
So yes, if, if that's, your, that's your method for addressing inequity is to make everyone poorer, that's actually fairly simple to do. The problem is, is what we find out is people don't like that. And so some of the same people that may have voted for Hugo Chavez 10 years earlier were the same people in the streets protesting against Hugo Chavez when the economic policies didn't achieve the results that were promised. Well, what happened at that point? Did the socialist government decide, you know what, gosh, maybe we're wrong. Maybe this, maybe this isn't the best way to achieve greater opportunity, wealth, and prosperity in society. No, no, they didn't come to that conclusion. They doubled down on all of their economic policies, and as a result, they created more people protesting their policies. And at that point, you reach a, there's a critical point each one of these socialist government meets when they're going to have to make one of two decisions. Either they're going to be in a position where the people can take control back and remove the socialist policies that have banished them to poverty, or the government not only doubles down on its economic policy, but it starts to suspend human rights and engage in political oppression. They start to engage in coercion and violence in order to achieve their objectives. And what you see from the left in this country is that the moment a socialist regime does that, they give these token responses where they're saying, well, yeah, no, that's, we don't like that. We're democratic socialists. Okay, well, great. Show me where socialism gets implemented and you don't get to come back 15, 20 years later and say that's not real socialism. When you're sitting there praising it, saying it's the real deal, or, or, or holding it up, as people like Nicole Hannah-Jones did, saying that this is the, the best country for addressing inequality. And then you see the political oppression, and you give a little token response, but then you find a way to blame the United States. It's all the United States' fault. I get to start asking you questions about, well, wait a second. If you actually get the economic policies that you want here in the United States and it doesn't achieve the desired results or people start to rebel against it, what is your response going to be? Is it, is it going to be to come back and say maybe we were wrong? Or is it going to be to crack down? Because what we saw with Hugo Chavez, what we see with the regime in Cuba, is they start to otherize anybody, any person that protests their power because they see themselves as the only legitimate representatives of the people's revolution. And it doesn't matter that the revolution took place decades ago. Revolution is an ongoing process for them. They have to keep people in this constant mindset of war and revolution. So that way, even when a majority of their population doesn't like what they're doing anymore, the government has the ability and what they believe is the moral authority to then otherize those people and say, no, 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 you're not the real people because they're the representatives of the people and the people's revolution. And so if they've got to crack down on your rights or liberties or freedoms, well, so be it. You're going to tell me that hasn't been what we've witnessed, whether it was the former USSR, whether it was Venezuela, whether it was Cuba, whether it was China. I mean, are you going to tell me that's not what happened? You're going to tell me the socialist government didn't come in and, and not start cracking down on anybody that opposed their economic policies? But there is a long history within the left in this country. And there, there was a reporter named you know, Durant who went over to the Soviet Union at a time when Stalin was engaging in massive oppression of his people to the point where millions of people were starving in the Ukraine. And what does he come back and, and tell everyone? I have seen the future and it works. 
Malcolm Muggridge was one of the only reporters that went over there and actually had the courage to come back and say Stalin is a monster. And he was mocked by the left-wing press for it. But then after everything comes out and we realize the purges and the fact that Muggridge was right, well, then it's like, well, well, okay, that wasn't real socialism. And you're seeing the same thing here with Cuba, where just last year, they're praising it as a way to address healthcare, as a way to address literacy, as a way to address education, as a way to address inequity within society and to achieve greater fairness. And then when you start to see the people rise up against their government because they don't like those policies, because the people living under that regime don't see it as a beacon of hope or equality or freedom or prosperity, the left totally turns a blind eye to them or tries to make the protest about something that it is clearly not. And that is what I find actually scary about this entire exercise. That, I think, is what gives us great insight into what would happen under a Bernie Sanders presidency or an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speakership or if Elizabeth Warren was running the treasury. What would they do? Well, they've already given us a hint. And they've already got huge organizations and they've already got academia backing them on this. And what they've indicated to us is that they see the Cuban system from an economic perspective as a model. And so we should ask the question back to them, like, okay, if, if you're going to hold it up as this is the way to address inequality, this is the way to address healthcare, this is the way to address education, this is the way to address economic disparities, the government is essentially going to take it over. Here's my question. I want to look at where we're at right now in the United States with respect to quality of life, standard of living. And I, and I, don't, want, I, I don't want some of these, these far-flung, arbitrary ways to judge this. I actually want to look at physical reality. What do people currently have access to right now in the United States with respect to products and services and the ability to improve their lives economically? I want to look at where we're at right now. That's the baseline. Assuming that Bernie Sanders or AOC or Elizabeth Warren get what they want, I want to know, since they're going to drastically change the way we've been doing business in the United States in favor of a more socialized system, I want to know, I want them to tell me what it is they're going to achieve through this. And then here's my question. If they fail to achieve it, what is going to be their response to that failure? Is it going to be to double down on all of their policies? Or is it going to be to admit that, you know what? We thought this would work. It didn't work. We gave it the old good college try. And, and now we're going to try something drastically different than the, the socialist policies that we implemented. I, I'm willing to bet they would not take that course of action. I think that they are so committed to a particular ideology that no matter how bad it performs, no matter how oppressive the government seemed to get, they never display an ounce of introspection and coming back and be like, you know what? Maybe this is a good idea in my head, but maybe it's not a good idea in reality. Because the question we all need to be asking ourselves right now as we watch not only what happened in Venezuela and what's currently happening in Cuba, as we watch how the left, especially the policymakers, respond to it, the question that we should all ask ourselves is, if they ever got power and were able to fully implement what they wanted to do,
to what level would they go to protect their power and their ideology? What extremes would they be willing to go in order to protect it? That is a question that we need to ask. So let's go down real quick and let's do, let's do a recap. We have plenty of examples of what happens when countries essentially adopt socialist policies. And we need to understand that Norway, Denmark, Sweden, these are not socialist countries. They are free market economies. They are free countries with a big welfare state. So you can argue that some of the policies that they implemented may be taking a page from socialism, but since the key feature of socialism is the abolition of the private ownership of the means of production, what we have to ask ourselves, is that what they have done in Denmark? No, they have not. They have not done that in Denmark. So no, those are not socialist countries. Cuba is. Cuba has, has implemented socialist doctrine. Venezuela was implementing socialist doctrine. Sometimes that doctrine merges a little bit with fascism, which is to say that they will allow for private ownership, but that private ownership is so closely controlled through government power regulation and subsidy that it ends up being a corporatist environment. And that's more of a fascist. You'll notice that fascism has a lot more in common with socialism than it does with capitalism or free markets because it's still relying upon government control. Right? So we've seen it there. We're watching it in Cuba. We're seeing people protest against it. <clears throat> That's the first thing that we need to ask. Is that what you really want? Show us specifically the policies that you want. And if you're going to point to Cuba as an example a year ago, you don't get to run away from it now and say, well, that's not what we really meant. Secondly, give us your standards for what you're going to achieve. And if you don't achieve it, I want to know what you're going to do then. Are you going to try a different course of action or are you going to double down on the previous one? Because if you double down on the previous one because you failed to meet your objectives, here's what's going to happen. The people that voted for your policies 10 years ago, 15 years ago, are going to come back and start to protest against them. And at that point, you're going to have a decision to make. Are you going to allow for the sort of change that goes away from the ideology that you've pushed? Or are you going to use violence, coercion, and intimidation in order to hold on to power? because you will have seen yourselves as the only true representative of the people's will. Because what I'm seeing right now and the way that AOC is addressing this and the way that Bernie Sanders is addressing this, Nicole Hannah-Jones, what I'm seeing right now is a propensity to excuse violence and oppression if it means that the government can be in control. And if you think that can't happen here, I will tell you you're being naive. This is something that human beings deal with all over the world. There are one of the, the, the biggest, when we talk about how do we foster the sort of society that protects freedom, we need to understand that we're talking about certain norms within human nature. And the question is, is that are we going to, are we going to organize a society around incentive structures that give people the ability to live their lives the way they want, providing they're not infringing on the rights of someone else to do the same. <clears throat> and a key component of that is not just their political life, it's their social and their economic life. So-called political freedom without social or economic freedom is meaningless. 
At that point, you're just voting on which labor camp you go to. You need to be able to protect the social and the economic freedom along with the political freedom. But I think it is a fair question, given the responses to what's going on in Cuba, to ask them to what limits they would be willing to go here in the United States should they ever get power and should they ever be able to implement their policies and there should, should there ever be a backlash to those policies. What sort of violence and coercion would they be willing to engage in? And, and if you think that, well, no, they would never do that. Let me just remind you something. In order for socialist policy to be implemented in the first place, it requires an immense amount of violence and coercion. Now, you may be able to morally justify it in your own mind by saying, well, that's how democracy works. Again, democracy is not freedom. Democratic election of representatives may be the best way to decide who makes the laws within a constitutional framework, but it is not the same thing as freedom. Freedom is you having genuine options with respect to your life to be able to make the decisions with the tools, resources, and talents that you have. And if the government is constantly coming in and taking that away or restricting it or telling you that you have to go in a particular direction, it doesn't matter that you voted for the guy. You're still not free. And what we have seen through history on several continents now is that when the people with that ideology get into power, they do not like to relinquish it. There is a propensity for them to not only use that initial violence necessary in order to redistribute goods, there then becomes the desire to institute violence in order to keep people in place so they don't oppose the system. And it is not irresponsible or hyperbolic or extreme for us to ask those questions to make the argument in such a way where we point out, okay, this is where we're currently at. This is what you want to do. This is the results you say it's going to achieve. If it doesn't, what will you do next? Will you learn from it? Or will you resort to oppression, coercion, intimidation, and violence? Because I'll tell you right now, the more people become comfortable with using government coercion in order to achieve their objectives, even if they don't realize it, they're becoming more comfortable with violence in general to achieve objectives. And all they're doing is putting up some sort of legal framework so that they can feel better about it. All right, I want to thank you for joining us on Making the Argument today. That is all the time we have now. We will be back with another, another episode shortly. Um, also, check out the last episode we just did if you want to see what's going on with respect to critical race theory within the classroom. A lot of parents right now are looking at the syllabus that their kids bring home from school, and they're looking at it and saying, well, there's no, there's no class here on critical race theory. Right? There's no particular book, maybe, in, on critical race theory. You need to understand the way this is being pushed is not as if every student is, is filing into the auditorium and then Ibram X. Kendi is coming in and teaching them about critical race theory. What's happening is more and more teachers are being required to go through certain training where they are now required to look through the subject that they teach through the lens of critical race theory. All right, so it's a lot more pervasive than just a class or a book on critical race theory. It, it's creating an infrastructure where every subject is taught through the lens of critical race theory. 
And that has some real implications. We talk about that. Um, really interesting guest. Encourage you to look that up as well. Once again, thank you for joining us and making the argument, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.